I want to invite you guys to open up your Bibles to the 12th chapter of Mark's Gospel. I want to read to you a, a short story of another, yet another encounter that Jesus has with uh, some of the religious authorities, this time with the Sadducees. And they, are, they rarely um, appear within the Gospel narratives. We hear of them by name only, but uh, we don't particularly encounter them often in terms of conversation and dialogue and their thought patterns. So this is a very interesting moment here in Mark's Gospel. And I want to read to you uh, from the 12th chapter. We're going to read verse 18 down to verse 27. This one dialogue or conversation that took place on this day. And remember, we're in this final week before Jesus is crucified. And this is what takes place. It says, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, one of the patterns that you see through biblical history and also through church history is that I I believe that in every age you see, roughly speaking, very general terms, two major deviations from uh, authentic biblical faith. If you think about what we're called to as Christians, it is a call to the love truth and to love doctrine and to walk in it. And this is called orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy just means to cut straight. The word literally means to cut straight. And you can think of orthodoxy as a kind of a straight path. And we trace the line of orthodoxy all the way through the patriarchs. We trace it through Abraham and through Moses and through David and through the prophets. And ultimately in its perfection in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He he embodies orthodoxy. He embodies the truth of God revealed in a person. This is Jesus Christ. But of course, Jesus also said that the way is narrow and that there are few who find it. And it seems to me that this pathway of what we can call orthodoxy, the belief in truth, the belief in right doctrine, is a narrow path and uh, that there are therefore it's easy to deviate from it. You can recognize it when you see it. You recognize it by the lifestyle it produces. You recognize it by its faith, by its dependence upon God, by uh, the characteristic of joy, by the characteristic of love that flows out from a right understanding of the gospel and of truth. There are all kinds of ways that you see um, orthodoxy lived out in this orthopraxy, which means right practice. But as I said to you, I think there are two great ways that we can fall away from, to the left or to the right, from a right way of believing. And on the one hand, you'll recognize straight away there's the, there's the pathway of religious moralism, 
Religious moralism just means that there is a tendency within uh, believers, actually in every religion, but we see it very clearly within the Christian faith. There is a tendency within certain um, devout believers to fall into a pattern, a corruption of the faith in which um, moral elitism becomes the, the great power, the great driving force of faith and of, of, the, of religious practice. And this is very easy to see. It's marked by a kind of very strict observance of law, of rules, of a particular moral pattern. It's marked by a seriousness within the, uh, those who practice this way of living, of real earnestness and devoutness. And it, it's characterized by a tendency to measure yourself against others. And I, I think that all of us have a, a proclivity towards religious moralism. The more seriously that we take our faith, the more danger we are of tipping into this kind of way of thinking and practicing. But what it tends to lead to is a brittleness of faith and of practice, a joyless religion, stern, miserable way of practicing religion. And all of us will have perhaps recognized this at moments in our own lives, but certainly seen it in the lives of others. Religious moralism is something very dangerous. And there were very ancient, also modern incarnations of this. At the time of Jesus, uh, he spent a good deal of time exposing this religious moralism. And he saw it most perfectly exemplified in the group that we call the Pharisees, that were called the Pharisees, this um, group of men who, uh, who were very zealous for the law of God and who sought to understand and read the scriptures and live it out to the nth degree and so put fences around the law in terms of all kinds of rules and regulations that they added to lest they should come anywhere near breaking the law of God. And many of the dialogues that we see of Jesus with the religious authorities are with these particular men. They were suspicious of Jesus because they saw in him somebody who seemed a little bit too relaxed, a bit too free, a bit too happy perhaps, and a bit too willing to associate with those that they labeled sinners. And so they were suspicious of Jesus. They thought he was very licentious. They thought he was a lawbreaker. They thought that he had to be a glutton and a drunkard. I think that they, um, they kind of implied that he was sexually devious as well because of his the company that he kept. But these are the religious moralists. And we understand that. And we see it also in our day. Uh, I think if anyone were to apply the label fundamentalist to a, to a, a Christian, it's not applied in a positive way. It's usually applied in a, in a negative way. And it's used, I think unfairly, but it's used to characterize this kind of way of practicing religion, that your religion has become joyless, stern, and devoid of life because it is so punctilious about law-keeping and about the regulations and the rules. And uh, there's a lack of grace, a lack of mercy, a lack of tenderness, a lack of love at the heart of that way of practicing religion. That's one way, the religious moralists. But there is another way which is maybe a little bit more difficult to define because it tends to morph in each age and take a different form depending on the culture and the particular interests of this society that's alive at the time. And I want to describe this as a religious liberalism. If we have the moralists on the, on the one hand, we have the religious liberals on the other hand. Now, don't confuse this with the political term liberal. I, I'm not talking about the same thing. But what we are talking about here is the way that religion can get corrupted through a lax handling of truth and of doctrine so that ultimately these things become secondary or of much lower importance in comparison with other concerns within the faith. And what was the driving force of a religious liberal is the elevation of human reason and intellect above um, a, trust, a trusting in God's word and in God's revealed word. And they become suspicious 
of anything that resembles too much fanaticism within religion, become suspicious of anything which is offensive, become suspicious of anything which is regarded as, um, as a little bit too extreme. Religious liberals instead tend to emphasize only the practices of a religion, the rituals, the traditions, uh, the things which actually cause very little offense, but which can label you as belonging to this faith without actually calling on you to change in any way in your heart or your beliefs. You can just go through the motions. And it tends to be a highly pragmatic way of living out your, your, your faith. It, 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 this is what I mean. It's difficult to find because it adapts to every age. A religious liberal in the 20th century looks different from a religious liberal in the 19th or in the 18th century. But it always has this kind of morphing pragmatism. It's interested in self-preservation. It's interested in adjusting the, the content of the faith to the age in which it exists in order to survive, but just maintaining only the shell of the religion, the kind of the appearance of religion, the appearance of piety. And it really it's the opposite of the moralists, who are very, they're idealists, they're earnest, they have God at the center and yet, of course, there is this lack of love and lack of grace. On the other end, you have these guys who emphasize only love and grace, but really have no particular interest in doctrine or in truth. Now, again, the ancient incarnation of this is the Sadducees. They were much smaller in number than the Pharisees, who were the moralists. But these men were the aristocrats of the age. They had the highest positions in the temple system, including the high priest was a Sadducee. But they were also in league with the Romans, which shows you that they were not particularly interested in true devotion to God. They were not interested in doctrine either so much. And they had a very limited view of, of their, their, their doctrine was much more limited than that of the Pharisees. And they were suspicious of that kind of fanatic sect of the Pharisees. And they fought with them regularly. They were pragmatic. And of course, we see this in our day and age. I think in many ways, this is the dominant force of Christianity in the West today, that we have... Um, many incarnations of Christian uh, practice in various churches and denominations which are, are, are basically religious, religiously liberal in the sense that they've drifted away from past convictions. All the main denominations at one time or other were founded by very devout orthodox men who wrote creeds and statements of faith most of which have been discarded by their descendants. And I'm talking about people in high positions and bishops and vicars and ministers and pastors and heads of denominations. And to a large extent, there's been a drifting away from truth and away from doctrine and a, just a, an interest in preserving the shell, the buildings, the rituals, the, the practices, the institutions of religion, but without the heart, without the urgency, without the mission, all of these things dis having disappeared. And of course, this is the opposite then of moralism. And I would want to stress right from the outset that this religious liberalism is the religion of the privileged. It's a religion of people who don't really need God because their life is comfortable. And therefore, religion is merely a kind of a sprinkling on the top of life rather than the very reason for which you exist and the passion, the urgency which drives you. And this was true of the Sadducees. It was true of them that they really they were pragmatic. They were willing to adjust their beliefs, and they were privileged men who occupied the highest seats of, of authority within, the Ju within Judaism. And therefore, they didn't need God in the same way that the, the peasant did or the Pharisee did, who felt an urgent need for the imminent power of God in his life. They weren't like that at all. They liked their position of wealth. They liked their position of power. They liked their position of comfort. And they wanted to discard anything that threatened those things. Now, let me tell you why this matters to us today. I am conscious within my own heart 
I'm conscious within, you know, as a pastor within the life of the church, that religious moralism is always a danger. Always a danger. The more earnestly and the more sincerely you want to live for God, the more there is always a threat that you will forget that you are basically dependent upon the grace of God and the mercy of God in day-to-day life and that you can never become a judge over others. You can forget these things. The more you strive to be like Christ, the more you are in danger of slipping into religious moralism. And this is always an ever-present threat. And I think this is why Christ spent so much time and so much energy exposing it for what it is and teaching against it. If anything, of all the people alive at the time, it was the Pharisees with whom he had the most in common, actually, because they, like him, took the word of God very seriously. But he sought to show them where they had gone wrong. So he spent a great deal of time and energy in his preaching exposing religious moralism. And we can never downplay the threat and the danger of it. But I want to tell you this, that I believe that religious liberalism is the atmosphere in which we live in our day and age. It's the dominant force within Western Christianity. And therefore, it's, it's kind of the atmosphere in which we, we develop faith and we can absorb the assumptions of it and we can also become and share its same concerns and aims. So these men approached Jesus. And what you have to understand about them is that the Sadducees were fundamentally anti-supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. They only believed in the present moment. Their, their faith was about living for the now There was no resurrection, there were no angels, no demons, no spirits, no heaven to go to. And so what they do is they try and put before Jesus this conundrum, this problem or this trap in order to catch him out and to prove that their belief was the true belief, that there is no heaven, there's no life after death. So they lay before him this problem, which is based on an ancient law called the law of leverate marriage. Now this strikes us as a very odd law in our day and age, but it, was, it had very ancient provenance. It actually uh, existed before the Old Testament law was written and certainly uh, put in black and white in the Old Testament law. But essentially what it said was this, that if a man died with no children, his brother would have to take his wife and bear children for him. And it was designed to uh, perpetuate the family name and also the family inheritance. And you can imagine in a day and age in which these things were not protected, this law was essential. And so they say, look, what happens if this woman marries seven brothers, all of them die, she also dies, there's no children, whose wife will she be in heaven? And they sit back, they fold their arms, and they're like, ha, answer that one, Jesus. They think they've caught him in a trap. They think they've proved that there is no such thing as life after death. Now, the answer that Christ gives to these men gets right to the heart of their problem. It gets right under the surface of what drives religious liberalism, exposes it and shows it for what it really is. And therefore, his words are as relevant today as they were then. And I want to show you what he says to them and show you why this is so fundamental to us practicing faith as Christ wants us to practice it. Let me show you a few things which come out from what Christ tells them. The first is this. He speaks to them about the importance of Scripture. And he shows them that religion dies when scripture is no longer foundational to your belief. Now the Sadducees, you see, were men who rejected the vast 
majority of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, all they accepted were the first five books, just this amount of my Bible here, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And they disregarded everything else in scripture. And as a result, what they ended up with was a rejection of many of the doctrines which are only in seed form in the books of Moses, but which find full fruition and development later in the Bible. All of Scripture it develops doctrine for us. This is what biblical theology is about. You see many ideas in seed form, like the idea of a savior in Genesis 3, the idea of God's saving plan in that Scripture as well, and of God's intention to change the world. But these things are developed as Scripture unfolds, which is why we have such a big book. But if you cut away all of it except for the first five books of Moses, it's easy to disregard some of these elements which they disregarded, the supernatural, the belief in life after death, the idea that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and a judgment and the heaven and of hell. You can get rid of all this and say, no, 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 these things aren't there in the books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And this is what they did. Now, what Jesus is pointing to here is he shows that the, the problem, the fundamental problem of these men was their willingness to excise vast portions of Scripture or to ignore Scripture. And this is a a pattern that we see all through church history, which always leads to massive problems within Christian uh, teachers, churches, and denominations. Just in the second century, we're talking about the 100s AD, one of the first and most famous heretics was a man called Marcion. And what Marcion did was he... He regarded just a few of the writings of Paul as scripture and he cut away everything else. He particularly took issue with what he saw as the God of the Old Testament in opposition to the God of the New Testament or of Jesus Christ himself. And so what he did was he, he decided, okay, I, I like these bits. I like the bits about love and grace and mercy and I'm going to get rid of the rest. I'm not interested in this God of judgment. I'm not interested in this God of wrath. I'm not interested in this God who will, um, who will judge us one day. And Marcion therefore cut away vast portions of scripture. And what he ended up with was something very different from Orthodox Christian practice. You see this pattern tracing its way through church history. You arrive in the 1500s in the Catholic Church and its corruptions. Now the Catholics, of course, on the surface, accepted all of the Bible as God's word. But in practice, or functionally, they, they were disregarding scripture, partly because many of them didn't understand it, written as it was in Latin and not translated into modern day, um, into their present day languages, but also because they, they, they believed in church traditions as more authoritative or as authoritative or trumping what it was said in scripture, which is why you could end up with the corruptions, like a man called Tetzel, traveling through Europe, selling indulgences, which were pieces of paper, which allowed you to purchase your way out of purgatory and even purchase your family out of purgatory by the giving of gold. And it was just a pure corruption that had infected the Catholic Church, which is part of the reason why the reformers, and thinking about men like Martin Luther and his, and his, uh, his companions, why they rejected what they saw within Catholicism. And they, the great cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, Scripture alone, just like they dealt with Marcion in the second century, the reformers called people back to the Bible and said, unless the Bible is our plumb line, then we'll find these deviations, these corruptions, and these ways in which religion will die. And the same thing happened, unfortunately, in the 1800s. 
in many ways you can't understand the state of Western Christianity today and the ways in which it has become a mere pale imitation of New Testament Christianity and has largely died and in the way in which most churches have been emptied. You can't understand these patterns unless you understand that it all can be, can be traced back to the way in which Scripture was uh, mishandled and disregarded in the 1800s by what was called higher criticism. In other words, they looked at the Bible and they said, okay, which parts of this do we accept as authentic or as original. So they might look at the Gospels and say, okay, the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life life of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus, some of this was just made up by the church. There's maybe bits and pieces that we accept as being true to what Jesus did and taught, but we're not so sure about the miracles. We're not so sure about certain sayings. We think some of these were included later. And what you end up with is a whittled-down version of the Christian faith, which actually you know, unsurprisingly ends up reflecting the culture in which you live and its, its interests and its preferences and not biblical Christianity. And you can't understand the death of Western Christianity and you recognize that this is the problem that which began to infect the churches and which began to change whole denominations as pastors actually, you know, they read their Bibles and they were like, well, I like these certain bits about love and grace and mercy, but I'm not so sure about um, the God who, who will judge sin or the ways in which he might... Um, he, he might punish his son on the cross for the sins of humankind. This is what happened. And so I want to ask the question with you, what's the basic problem here? The fundamental problem, and the one which Jesus puts his finger on, is the asserting of human reason over the revelation of God, so that we become the authority over the Scriptures rather than submitting to the Scriptures. We get to decide what we like and what we don't like. We get to choose which doctrines we think are, real, are true and which are not true. And of course, all we end up doing is holding the Bible up as a mirror in which it begins to just reflect our own um, preconceptions and beliefs, which we've absorbed from our culture, rather than our minds and hearts being shaped by it and us becoming more like Christ. Thomas Jefferson in the 1820s, who was one of the founding fathers of the United States, he wrote the book, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, a perfect example of this way of handling scripture, in which he went through the Gospels and sought to retell the life of Jesus, but excluding all the supernatural elements, you know, the miracles and the resurrection of Christ, and tried to get back to what could be a more conceivable or acceptable version of Jesus, just taking some of his teachings and some of the events that happened in his life and repackaging them as a, a Jesus who fitted with the Enlightenment age in which he lived, a Jesus without any miraculous uh, works or any of these kinds of things. And it seems to me that most of Christianity in the West today still takes that approach in the sense that we take a few select ideas like the scripture in 1 John 4, 8 that says God is love. And then we say, well, we like that part and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make that authoritative over everything that we believe about the Christian life. And so we're going to get rid of the stuff about him being angry with humans on account of their sin. We're going to get rid of the stuff about that calls us to actually change and conform our lives to the pattern of Christ. We're going to get rid of the stuff about the prospect of standing before Jesus as a judge one day. God is love. And so magically, Christianity begins to resemble the songs of the Beatles and of John Lennon rather than of course, anything that the, script, that the apostles taught at the time of the New Testament. And the result is that we have a faith which is just a mirror to the culture. 
A Christianity which has warped and transformed and molded and remorphed itself in order to survive within a hostile culture, getting rid of all the bits which are offensive and, and then ending up with just a mere institution, empty of any real power or help for the desperate sinner who needs mercy at the feet of Jesus. And this is, of course, what he says to them. He says, is, not, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They didn't know the Bible. They didn't know the scriptures, not in the way that they were called to as religious leaders. Jesus has no time for this. As he begins to answer them, it's interesting how he, he answers them on their own terrain. He cites, he quotes from the Pentateuch, from the books of the Bible that they did accept. But he shows them that he has read it more closely than they have. His answer turns even on the grammar of what God says when God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. Jesus is saying, I've read this more closely than you have. And of course we can see that the resurrection is real and that, that, that those who die do not die, um, do not disappear into oblivion. And of course, this way in which Jesus handled the scriptures is fundamental to understanding the life of Christ. Back in Matthew chapter 5, when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When Jesus says an iota or a dot, he's talking about the tiniest marks on the letterings of the Hebrew scriptures, which he would have read in synagogue as a boy growing up. He's saying every tiny mark matters. Every little part is inspired and God breathed. And therefore not even one little mark will disappear until it's all fulfilled. And it is indeed fulfilled by Christ. And you see this all the way through the life of Jesus. There we find him. The age of 12. 12 years of age. Debating with these religious leaders in the temple when they, he travels down there with his parents. And spending hours dialoguing and discussing interpretation of scripture. Here he is as a little boy, and he knows the Bible better than, than any of us, I would wager. You see him in the temptation, in his moment of temptation in the wilderness, when Satan is saying to him, do this, do that, and tempting him in various ways. You see him pulling on the scriptures that he has stored up in his mind, having learned and read them from infancy. You see him wielding them like swords against the enemy, so as to overcome temptation. You find him advocating the reading of scripture when he says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see him throughout his life expounding scripture because he teaches it and he finds ways of applying the law to his hearers and searching our hearts by the astute and direct application of God's word in such a way that it cuts right to the core of our conscience and exposes our sin and our need for God. And you find his whole life is an embodiment of the promises that were held in scripture. Jesus is the living, walking incarnation of truth and therefore his whole life marries up with and synchronizes with perfectly the scriptures that had been given by God in the Old Testament. Jesus loved truth. He loved doctrine. And this is why he actually doesn't spend much time dialoguing with the Sadducees because he doesn't have any common ground with them. If they aren't interested in doctrine, if they're not interested in reading the scriptures closely, then he doesn't have any basis on which he can dialogue with them about what true religion is. And it seems to me that this is something that we as Christians need to understand 
and we need to take to heart very deeply. We have a choice, basically. Either we become the authority over the scriptures, which is the disease I'm suggesting, which is killing Christianity in the West, our selective reading of the Bible and our, uh, you know, the elevation of human reason and of intellect so that we think we're so smart and so wise that we can decide what is true and what is not true. Either we take that path and we end up in this kind of corrupt, dead version of religion which just sort of morphs according to whatever's going on in the trends of culture at the time, or, or we surrender to the voice of God in his word. This is what he says to them. You don't know the scriptures. The reason why your religion is so dead, so devoid of hope, so lifeless, is because you don't know the scriptures and all that it contains and all that it promises. This is the first thing he says about this form of religion, this dead religion. It has to do with scripture. The second thing that he critiques them on is, I want to describe as the, the, um, the lack of the supernatural The fact that religion dies when we reject the supernatural work and activity of God in this age. Now, I want to be clear about what I'm saying here. I'm not referring to so much um, the signs and wonders which you see in the life of Jesus and at moments in, in the book of Acts and so on in the life of the apostles. Signs and wonders in Scripture come and go. It's a more mysterious element of the faith. And there's a reason why God in His sovereignty, sometimes there's an explosion of miracles and sometimes they seem to disappear for a season. The reason, part of the reason is that they're not essential to the Christian faith in the same way that other aspects of the God's supernatural activity are. Rather, what I'm trying to talk to you about here is the fact that Christianity <clears throat> is supernatural from top to bottom, just through and through. The entirety of our faith is premised on and built upon a belief about the activity of God in the world in a very imminent way, in a way that he is present with us, in a way that he is working in the here and now. And we believe this about the existence of the planet to begin with, the fact that our God is a creative God who speaks the worlds into being. Our story about how we came into existence differs from the story that the world offers in that we believe in God and they do not. They believe in a, in a material, naturalistic explanation for life. We believe in humans as spiritual beings, that we are not just bodies and brains, but that we have a spiritual life inside us and a life that has the capacity to commune with the Holy God and that is ultimately not going to die in eternity. We believe that we live within a spiritual warfare. The New Testament is full of this consciousness and this awareness of the spiritual warfare that's taking place around us, of angels and of demons, and of the challenge of living a life for God when you face such opposition in demonic oppression and uh, the spiritual warfare which is characteristic of the, the Christian life. We believe in a, in a God who incarnated in human form, the, the living God taking on human flesh. And we believe ultimately that the only way that a person can be saved is by a supernatural work of God in your life, which we call being born again. Now, well, the reason why I'm reminding you of all these things is because, listen, one of the characteristics of religious liberalism is that we begin to cut away everything that is supernatural within faith. And you see this in the life of the Sadducees. They believed in no angels, no spirits, no life after death. And of course, that meant that Their, their faith was somewhat 
stumps and cut down to the stump. It's quite an amusing moment in um, the book of Acts when uh, Paul is, is arrested and put on trial. Uh, towards the end of the book of Acts, he's put on trial and he's dragged in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, which is made up partly of Pharisees and partly of Sadducees, these two opposing groups. But all of them have this in common. They hate Paul and they hate Jesus Christ. And Paul looks around the room, he surveys the room and he, he, he decides, I've got a strategy here to, to cause a little bit of chaos today. And what he does is he says, he shouts out, brothers, I'm a Pharisee and it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And what he's doing there is he's, he's, he's setting off the two groups against each other. The Pharisees then immediately say, well, we're on Paul's side because we also believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees think, oh, this is nonsense. And they begin arguing in front of him. And Paul can just fold his arms, sit back and watch things unfold. But you see, this is the problem with the Sadducees, these men. Because they had no belief in the spiritual realities and indeed of the consequences of this life into the next, the only things that they were interested in were power, and wealth, and position, and, and, maintain, and survival, essentially. And living their best lives now. And this anti-supernaturalism, I, I want to I assert and suggest to you as strongly as I can that this is the biggest problem within Western Christianity today. It's not only the fact that we reject Scripture, but because we, also, because we reject Scripture, or we take this pick-and-choose approach to it, we also discard... The, the supernatural work of God and the supernatural aspects of what the gospel is that we believe. And we become embarrassed about these things. And you might think that's, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound accurate, but think about this for just a moment. We're embarrassed, for example, to talk about the need to be born again. When I was young, um, if you wanted to kind of label somebody as a bit of a fanatical Christian, you'd call them a born-again Christian. And what you're doing there is you're essentially saying there are certain Christians who really believe the gospel, and they're the ones we're not particularly sure about. And then there are the rest of Christians who are basically, you know, don't offend us and kind of fit with culture and who just, their Christianity is just about rituals and going to church on Sunday. Those ones, they're safe Christians. Whenever we downplay this element of the, the confrontation of Christ, that he must come into your life, that he must invade you and, and cause you to be born again by, by the, the work of the Holy Spirit in you, to turn you from death to life, to bring you from slavery to freedom, that this is a work of God, that, that ultimately he, he alone can rescue you. If ever we see this being downplayed, then you know that what we're dealing with there is an anti-supernatural version of Christianity. Or think about the way that we are nervous about speaking about judgment. Now, of course, the nature of judgment on the final day is that we're talking about spiritual realities that we can't see and touch in the present. These are spiritual truths. And they energize living Christianity. But whenever you go into a church and there's no mention of the possibility of facing Christ as your judge, then you're going into a church where there is fundamentally an anti-supernaturalism at work there, where all that they're interested in is the here and the now, the ways in which Christianity can improve your life in the present. So instead, what we emphasize are things like the benefits of community, 
or the ways in which Christianity can change society or the way in which you can experience peace in your life in the here and now by having religious practice added into it. And so we're, we're safe. These, we're comfortable with these safe additions, these safe ways of proclaiming the Christian faith, but we excise and get rid of the confrontational elements, the supernatural elements, the elements which cause people to sit up and, and take notice and which cause them even to get angry or to walk away from Christ. And why is this? And I think it's because all of us are children of the Enlightenment. It was in the Enlightenment in the 1700s around then that, that, that humans began to, um, that we began to get rid of the supernatural superstitious beliefs and the world was reduced down to just a materialistic machine. And so secularism began to shape the Christian faith, which is why we find Christians in the West who, who basically don't know why they need to pray. Or, or don't understand the urgency of the gospel and the way in which it confronts us. And I think another reason is because we're just wealthy. It seems to me that living faith, the faith that you find in the New Testament, survives and thrives among the poor, where God is your only hope. But where we become a little bit too comfortable, too privileged and too wealthy, this is where we're likely to focus on this present age, on the things that we can touch and smell and feel and enjoy in the here and now and get rid of all of that, kind of, that kind of supernatural element which causes us to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And this is where Jesus puts these men on the spot. And he says to them that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Theirs was a dead religion because they, they'd they gotten rid of all these elements of the Christian faith which are so essential. And I say that the exact same charge can be laid at the feet of many Christians, many churches, and many denominations in the West today. We are anti-scripture and we are anti-supernatural. And what we have ended up with is the mere shell of Christianity. Something which is dead at its heart, which doesn't have the gospel, which doesn't offer the promise of God through Christ. And Jesus would have no time for this. He would, he, would, he, would, he would not have an interest in it. Which brings us to the third thing which he shows them here. If Christ wants to reassert scripture and he wants to reassert the power of God and the supernatural, he also shows them the central importance of eternity within Christian hope. And I want to put it to you like this, that religion dies when we lose sight of eternity. What happens when... You no longer build your faith on scripture and you no longer take an interest in the supernatural elements of the Christian faith. Well, you end up like these Sadducees. They had a two-dimensional faith. Their practice, their religious practice, was only really interested and focused on this life. And on the ways in which they could keep and maintain power. And the ways that they could, could have a, a faith which was acceptable to the, to the powers around them particularly to the Romans. And we see this same tendency within Christianity today. Too many modern churches, too many modern de denominations have cut away any real focus upon eternity. And this is how you see it. There's no urgency in mission. You think, what is it that compels the mission of the church? The mission of the church is compelled by the urgency of the fact that our lives are short and that Christ is coming again. And that he's coming to judge the living and the dead. But if you walk into a church where there's not, no particular um, urgency to tell you that you need to repent now, lest you perish for eternity, then you've walked into a place which largely doesn't 
where eternity doesn't really impact the expression of and the understanding of faith within that version of, the, of Christianity. If there's no urgency in mission, if there's no speaking about the reality of Christ's coming and of his coming to judge the living and the dead, if there's no offer, no pleading with you that you need to accept the gift of Christ for eternal life, then you've walked into a version of Christianity which has no real interest in eternity. And instead what we've ended up with is a Christianity which is consumed with the present, which is interested in power, which is interested in politics, which is interested in changing society and being acceptable to society and ultimately in surviving by portraying a good image to the world around us. And it seems to me that th- what I'm describing to you perfectly encapsulates what is the dominant um, portrayal of the, of the Christian faith as it's practiced, certainly in Britain today. There's no eternity. Jesus shows us here, he shows these Sadducees, that it is eternity and it's the eternal promises of God which give meaning to your faith in the present which make it vital, which make it come alive, which give you a sense of, of, of God's, of, of the absolute urgency of knowing God in the here and now and of be, being in communion with him and being saved by him. It's the reality of eternity which gives, gives that kind of vibrancy to your faith right now. He says to them, he describes to them how God has always offered the promise of eternal life. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? And he's, he's citing here from the book of Exodus. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What Jesus is doing here is he is showing that it is because we have life beyond death. It's because our souls continue to live with God into eternity. It's because of the promise of God, which is an eternal promise, that our life in the here and now matters. One commentator put it like this. He says, These three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God that was so dynamic, so profound, that it demanded a continued living relationship with God after death. God does not make an everlasting covenant promise with insects that last an hour. He's absolutely right. The promises of God that were given to these patriarchs when God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The promise of God only has power and only makes sense if this promise is eternal, if it has implications for our lives beyond death. As soon as you whittle life down to just this present moment, you've ended up with a dead faith. And God couldn't say this unless the promise was eternal. It would be like a widower saying, I am the husband of of, of, of Sarah or of Lucy or whoever the name of this person is. The promise of God only makes sense if your spouse is alive in the here and now. And what the Bible praises here, what the Bible praises is those who have this eternal perspective on their faith, which gives power and urgency to the present moment. Think about the men and women of faith in the scriptures. I think about Hebrews 11. It praises Abraham, says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The thing which compelled Abraham to live a life of faith for God was that he looked into the next age and didn't just focus on the present. And I want to read to you a few verses that explain this a bit further in Hebrews 11. He's speaking about Hebrews of faith, uh, heroes of faith. He says, These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that whole chapter describes the way in which men and women who live for the eternal vision, the eternal city, who look ahead to the promises of God as they're fulfilled in eternity, they're the ones who are heroes of the faith in the here and now. They're the ones who can sacrifice and who can be martyred and who can suffer and who will live urgently for God in the present because their whole life is energized by the promise of God as it is into eternity. We see this in the life of Paul, don't we? If you've read the letters of Paul, you'll know the ways in which he suffered for Jesus. His life was made up before he met Jesus. He was, he was ascending through the ranks of the Pharisees and would have been in a position of great power and comfort among them. But when he meets Jesus, all of that is thrown in, into the garbage bin and his whole life is, 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 is set into a new direction in which he becomes Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. And Jesus tells him from their first encounter when he meets him on the Damascus Road, Damascus Road, Jesus tells him that he's going to suffer. He's going to suffer for Christ and for the gospel. And then he does. He embraces it. He lives a life of traveling endless thousands of miles of not knowing where his next meal comes from, is going to come from, of preaching boldly in city after city in the villages, declaring the gospel of God to hostile people so that they then reject him and beat him and stone him and how he, he often only escapes death by a whisker. And you cannot understand the energy and the power and the dynamism of the life of the Apostle Paul until you realize that it was this passion for his eternal life with Christ that compelled him and gave him energy in the present. I don't think we see this, we ever see it more clearly than in the letter to the Philippians when he's languishing in a prison cell, unsure of whether he's going to be executed for his preaching of the gospel. And he says to them, he shows them how he's in this moment of dilemma. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, whatever happens, whatever my fate is, I hope that I can bring honor to Jesus. And then he explains a bit more. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That seems to me a statement which captures and encapsulates the entirety of the faith which Paul lived and preached. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you cut away any element of that, you end up with a man who no longer has a purpose for living. If he isn't compelled by eternity, if he doesn't genuinely, in his heart of hearts, in his very gut, believe that it's better to die and be with Jesus than to remain in this life. If, unless he believes that, then you can't explain anything of what happened in his life. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that 
is far better. I would say, and I speak to myself as much as to you, that I've rarely met a believer who really fully embodies this conviction that to die is gain, that it's better to depart and be with Christ. And I think that goes a long way to explaining the ways in which our faith is weakened, the ways in which we live this two-dimensional version of Christianity like that of the Sadducees, where we're more interested in the comforts of this present age, where we're not willing to make sacrifice, where we're not willing to express urgency in the need to communicate the gospel to the nations, because we don't believe it in our heart of hearts that the eternal aspect of the Christian faith is ignored and disregarded and it's all about the here and the now. And what you end up with is a kind of a very pale version of Christianity. I think about Stephen also, the first Christian martyr. You know, when you read the account of his death and how the men stoned him to death, one of the things that is most striking is the way in which he died in those final moments as the rocks are being hurtled at him and beginning to cut him and bruise him and break him and smash his skull, he looks up to heaven and he sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he asks and pleads with the Lord to forgive these people who are killing him, who are putting him to death. You think, how does a man exhibit such courage? How does he exhibit such an urgency to communicate the gospel to a hostile people? How does he risk his very life and then ultimately pay the, that, that ultimate sacrifice of dying on that day? And I, th I don't think the, the puzzle is that difficult to understand. It's simple. It's because he believes in eternity and he believes in a living Christ. And he believes in life beyond death. This is what Christ is underlining for these Sadducees. It seems to me that the, the implications of this are enormous. That without this kind of faith we end up with a, with a version of Christianity that just resembles that of the Sadducees. A selective approach to the reading of Scripture. A diminishment and a downplaying of the supernatural elements of our faith in preference for kind of the present ways in which Christianity can help you in, in this moment. And ultimately, no real thought to eternity and living, living with that urgency that my life, my life matters because it is eternal, because I'm immortal. Because my soul will be with God eternally. But of course, when, when our faith is re-energized in the way that Christ wants these Sadducees to understand, that God's promises are eternal, that He's here in the here and now, and He's watching our lives, and He's interested in the way that we live. When we believe these things, we can, we can, we can exercise brutal determination to put to death sin in our lives. Because we won't choose momentary comfort and pleasure over eternal loss or gain. We can give away freely the money that God puts in a, into our hands, understanding that ultimately we want to lay aside treasures in heaven and that hoarding and holding onto our treasure on earth does not serve us in any eternal way. We can spend our energy in love and service for the body of Christ loving others sacrificially, not complaining of the ways in which we grow tired or weary through our service. Right? You know, it's, not, it's very common for me 
to voice this and also to hear it on the lips of others that we, we feel so sorry for ourselves, for how hard we're working at times, whether it's in our job or whether it's in serving others in the body of Christ. You think we wouldn't think this way if we truly understand that we are here only for a few brief moments and our life is gone and then we're with God eternally. Why not spend ourselves for God here and now? Why not use up this life for Him? We'll devote ourselves to hours of secret prayer. It seems to me that, you know, I I think that you can only really sort out what a person is spiritually when you see them in the secret place, when no one's watching. And one of the ways in which you can really assess the health of someone's spirituality is look at their prayer life. If you see somebody who... Who, who, who doesn't bother with praying in secret, only ever prays when called upon in public meetings, if then, then you see someone who has no real vital relationship with God. But the person who has this real vital relationship with God, the person who believes that their, that their life is, is designed for communion with an eternal God, is somebody who devotes hours to secret prayer, an exercise which is pointless unless you believe in eternity and in the power of God. Ultimately, of course, we'll be empowered to suffer for him as well. It's not worth it, is it? It's not worth suffering for Jesus if this life is all there is. We'll end up like these men, living a comfortable existence, but powerless Christianity. It seems to me that the example that Christ set for us when he went to the cross because of the joy set before him, because of the reality of his eternal existence with his bride, the church, it seems to me that the weight of eternity is what compels him to suffer on the cross. And it is the same thing which compels us to exert ourselves and to suffer for Jesus in this life. Friends, the thing I want to remind you of is that we are called to be disciples of Jesus. And that there are versions and ways of living the Christian faith in the here and now which are a pale and dead reflection of the Christian faith as it's embodied in the New Testament. And what we need to do is call ourselves back to the kind of faith which Christ taught and which he embodied. A faith which is founded upon the scripture, which believes in the imminent power, the activity of God in the here and now as supernatural faith and which, is, which is, places its hope in eternity. And Christians who believe these things become truly radical and energized and red hot for Jesus. And it seems to me that even if you accept these things intellectually, when your faith has grown dull, when your faith has grown cool and lukewarm, it's because all of these things are starting to be disregarded in your life. Come back to the faith which Jesus compels us to walk in. This pure kind of fundamentalism. It's not the moralism that is often associated with that word, but it's the fundamentalism, the orthodoxy of Jesus Christ. A vivid, living, powerful, energetic faith that's based upon the eternal promises of God. Let's pray together. Father, I look at my own life and I see the ways in which I feel that my spirituality falls so far short of what Jesus preached and modeled. I'm really sick of what our faith has become in the West. The atmosphere we breathe, 
of an acceptable version of Christianity, devoid of any real hope, any living power of God, conforming to the present age, weak and insipid, limp-wristed and cowardly. And look at Christ, how preparing as he was in these final days before he would go to the cross, he was not willing to compromise his beliefs. And Lord, I want to be that kind of a Christian and I want to pray it for this church that I had the privilege of pastoring. May we be believers, Christians, who don't only give lip service to these realities, but who believe them with urgency, with passion, with fire. Lord, help us. Help us in our day-to-day lives when we're just drinking in so much of the spirit of the age, a materialistic age, a consumeristic age, a therapeutic age, an age which is designed in every way to put a dampener on our faith and to turn us into lukewarm Christians. God, teach us to find nourishment in your word, to believe it. Fill us with your spirit so that we'll see Christ. Give us a glimpse of eternity, Lord, so that the present is controlled by the future rather than us just living for the now. We come to you, God. We ask you for this fresh infilling of power and of life and the revivication of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.